You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 190, Jason Elam and the Devastating Love of God. Halfway there. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I, of course, am your host, Eric Nevins, and I'm so glad that you are here. Thank you for downloading and being here uh, and listening. You know, every single episode, it is my goal that uh, you find some nugget, some little, little piece of either information or encouragement that helps you on the journey in some way, wherever you are in that journey. And I know that today is going to be one of those that will add a lot. So uh, our guest today is the host of the Messy Spirituality Podcast, Jason Elam. Jason, welcome to the show. Eric, thank you, my brother. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I am too. We've connected a little bit online and we've had, we've done some live conversations together. And so, uh, but we don't really know each other that well. So I'm excited for the chance to get to know you better. Um, your podcast looks great. Um, and so... We're going to talk all about all about that. But so why don't you tell us a little bit to start off about who you are and where God has you right now? Well, um, my name is Jason. I was born near Dayton, Ohio. Grew up there until I was about 14. Moved from there to New Jersey. Stayed a couple of years there. Lived in Virginia for six months. Then settled in Alabama for most of my adult life. Recently moved to the Florida Panhandle. I was a pastor for almost 25 years. I uh, started off Southern Baptist. I kind of took a Pentecostal turn into the Cleveland, Tennessee version of the Church of God. Okay. I was actually the pastor of a charismatic Lutheran church for a little while. And then I joined the denomination that calls itself non-denominational. <laughs> <laughs> well said. I'm in that tribe right now. Our, our church, yeah. it's a long story. We got kicked out of the Presbyterian church in the 70s. So. Well, all right. Yeah. Anyway, I'll tell that story some other time. But okay, all right. So you're you're in the non-denominational world. Yeah, I stopped pastoring last year uh, in 2018. I just had a dramatic encounter with the love of God, mm. and it led me to start asking some questions about why we were doing things that we were doing. Yeah. Um, I had been pastoring a church. We planted Ooh. the church in 2014. I loved it, thought it was going to be my life's work. It was small. It struggled every day of its existence. Yeah. I was not a full-time staff member. I was bivocational the whole time. But I loved it, and I loved the people, and I loved the community. We were in one of the poorest, most addicted communities in Alabama. Oh, wow. Okay. And I, yeah, I want to come back to this because I want to okay. get there. I want to set, set everything else up before we get there, So, sure. um, which is great. So that tells us where we're going. So you... Uh, so you said you, I'm sorry, where did you say you started out? Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio. Okay. I thought I was thinking Ohio, but then I thought Michigan. So I knew that wasn't right. And they hate each other. Don't they? Michigan. <laughs> That's right. Michigan yeah, don't say Ohio. that at a football game. I know. I know. All right. So Ohio, so you grew up in Ohio. What was the spiritual climate like in Ohio? I was or raised in the Nazarene church. Okay. Um, when I was seven years old, I went to a children's revival at the Nazarene church that we were a part of. It was, uh, a middle-sized church. It wasn't a mega church, but it wasn't a tiny struggling church. They probably had three to 500 members. Okay. Um, they had a children's revival. They had a great children's ministry there. It was an older couple. They were very kind, very sweet. I love them dearly to this day. Um, but during the first night of the children's revival, they presented 
the the picture of hell and how anybody mm-hmm. who died without knowing Jesus was going to spend an eternity burning in flames. And I was terrified. And so, man, if you would have told me that I needed to, um, you know, join a gym and work out every day for six hours a day, I would have done that. I, whatever it took yeah. to get, I, I hate this terminology, especially as a, as a former pastor, but man, I wanted the fire insurance. I wanted to know that I was not going to burn in hell for all eternity. And so out of fear, I walked the aisle, went down to the altar and prayed a prayer I didn't understand. I got baptized in that church. Um, it was a good church full of good people. I think that uh, older couple who did that children's revival, their hearts were absolutely in the right place. But if it's possible to get saved for the wrong reasons, that's what happened mm, to me when I was seven years old. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think you make a good point because, uh, you know, if you understand the gospel in a certain way, then that's what you do, right? And so then sharing sharing the gospel, um, you can only share what you've received. So that... And there's a lot of people who do share because they're concerned about other people. So, yeah, their sure. heart's in the right place. I love that. But uh, it's a tough thing to build a faith on, though. Yeah. Yeah. It colored every aspect of my faith. For years afterwards, I mean, really into adulthood, wow. I couldn't stand to look at a picture of Jesus on the cross. Um, because if that's what I put him through, and if he mm-hmm. died to protect me from the payback for that, then I was going to screw this up and I was going to be in trouble at some point. Oh, yeah. If it was all about my behavior and getting my act together, if, if it was all about me you know, joining a church and, and being a part of it and uh, you know, teaching Sunday school and answering the call of God in my life, it was about my effort that I was in trouble and I knew it. Uh, when I thought of God as someone I needed to be protected from by the blood of Jesus, it colored everything between my relationship with God, my relationship with other people, and what I thought the church was here to accomplish. Wow. Okay, so that really sounds like it affected you. So I'm, I'm always curious about uh, kind of growing stages, right? So when you started to uh, kind of learn, you know, you eventually became a pastor. So that must have kind of come up and moved you in that direction as well. So how, how did that happen? And what, were there any like significant events in there that um, where you felt like God was calling you there? Yeah, there were a couple as a child, and then a third one that happened just a couple years ago. Um, the first one that happened when I was a child when I when I got saved when I when I walked that aisle at the church and got baptized shortly thereafter. I think I always knew that I was going to be in ministry. I just kind of accepted it as a package deal. If you're going to follow mm. this road. You're going to tell people about the road. And I wanted to do that. But, you know, when I was 12 years old, I had my tonsils out pretty late yeah. <laughs> in life for that to happen. But while I was on the operating table, I was either given too much medication or had a bad reaction to it. And I flatlined. I died on the operating table. Wow. Um, and when that happened, I had what has been burned in my conscience as an encounter with the love of God. It sounds stereotypical to talk about a tunnel and a bright light, but that's exactly what I experienced as a 12-year-old on the operating table. I really thought it was a dream until I overheard my mom on the phone crying after I was back in my room, and she was telling this person, thinking that I was asleep, 
that I had died and they used those paddles to shock my heart back into rhythm and bring me back. Oh man, and as a parent, right? That's your worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, of course. Wow. And but when I woke up from this dream or vision of this encounter, whatever happened, maybe it was the medicine, I don't know, but I woke up believing that I was absolutely loved by God, that I was born for a purpose and that there was nothing I could do to change how God felt about me. Um, so I had these two competing views of God from that moment forward. Yeah, There was the Jesus who died to save me from God. And then there was this encounter that I had with this love of God that nothing I could do or say would change that love. Um, so I struggled with that. It was a, a dichotomy that I wrestled with for my teenage years and into my young adulthood. Um, I went when I was 22 years old uh, as a missionary to Romania. Went there for a year and was working with kids living in the streets. Uh, during that time, the United States bombed uh, one of the Eastern European countries that had been part of the Soviet Union nearby. It was not Romania, but it was over there. Yeah. Was that was that, that still when it was restricted, or was that after? No, freedom had just come. Okay. Uh, they had shot their dictators the, on Christmas Day. Uh, they know how to do it right. Lying in the street, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so they were still figuring out what it meant to be a democracy, right? Yeah, gotcha. Um, but one of these kids that was living in the street that we were helping to feed during that year that I was there um, was originally from this country we were bombing. And we showed up for the feeding, uh, the team that I was working with and I, we showed up to feed them uh, on a night. The sun had just gone down. It was cold. They were going to be sleeping in the sewer system because it was warm down there. And we wanted to take them some food before they went down. Well, he was angry. He was furious with me as an American because my country had bombed his relatives. Mm. And I was very much a red, white, and blue, red-blooded American defending the red, you know, the flag and all of that during that time in my life. And so the most natural response from my heart was to argue with him that we were the good guys, you know? Um, but something stopped me from doing that. And this, this little child, he's, he's probably 10 years old. He picks up stones and begins throwing them at me and my team. Wow. Because we are the, the oppressor in his mind. And so we're the terrorists in his mind. He's throwing stones at me as a representation of what my country's done. Um, and like I said, I was a fighter. I did not want to turn the other cheek in that instance at all. This was not a natural response from me. But before I even knew what I was doing, I wrapped my arms around this kid and just hugged him. And he started crying. And he hugged me back. And he took the sandwich. And then he helped distribute the food to other people who were there that night needing food. And I was like... God, what in the world just happened? Wow. I was apologizing to the team who was with me. I don't know what just happened. I don't know why I did that. And it was like the voice of God just said, that's the kind of love I have for you. If you'll throw stones at me, if you curse my name, I just want to love you and hug you. And I want to love all that fear right out of you. And that is the power of love. That is ministry. And that, that changed me. Yeah. That lodged in my heart. And so I no longer saw God as someone the world needed to be saved from, but 
I saw the love of God as my mission and that every human being needed an encounter with that love that would cast out all their fear. And so that changes ministry. Um, I still struggled. Again, I was a Southern Baptist pastor uh, after that, very much cut in the cloth of the church that I answered a call of ministry in. And so I was, you know, very typical in my evangelism and my gospel presentation, the Roman road, you're a sinner, you need to be saved, you're going to go to hell if you don't pray this prayer, repeat after me. But underneath all of that very traditional, conservative, Southern Baptist exterior was a heart that knew the love of God. Hmm. And uh, that changes you. Yeah, it does. It, and, and so there was always this dichotomy between uh, yeah. the preacher I was trained to be <laughs> and the love that I'd experienced. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Okay, so did that kind of pull at you quite a bit? Did it make yeah. you uncomfortable? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And a couple of years after that was September 11th, right? And so the United States, um, you know, was attacked. And uh, I remember I was very much a uh, supporter of President Bush uh, in 2000. I had a bumper sticker on my car, the whole deal. We got attacked. And I remember President Bush standing in the midst of the rubble at September mm-hmm. 11th in New York City right there at ground zero. And I remember the, the megaphone, right? He yeah. says, you know, uh, he hears all these people cheering USA, USA, USA. And he says, I hear you. The country hears you. And the people who did this will hear from all of us soon. Yeah. Right. And there was something that rose up in me thinking, yes, get them, get them. We got to bomb those people out of existence. We got to save this world for democracy. And then there was just something that that part of me that had encountered that love that night in the street with that kid said, oh, but this isn't the way. Yeah. This isn't the way. And so that love began to color everything uh, that I saw or touched or experienced. Um, and it was devastating. You know, I, like <laughs> I said, I was very much a patriotic conservative republic. And I, and I haven't changed. It's not like I flipped over and became a Democrat overnight or anything like that. But the love of God began to color every aspect of my life, including my politics. Yeah. Yeah, which is really interesting, right? I think that's one of the things that right now is um, fascinating for me. I, I So you don't know this about me, but I started – when I got out of seminary, I started a political blog talking about Christians and politics. And I was on the like right you know side – there's a whole story to how I ended up here, but um, I, it's interesting. I'm really glad actually, I think Donald Trump has to, he, he is such a polarizing figure that he's forcing evangelicals to reconsider a lot, right? A lot of, a lot of political allegiances. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I think it's actually really good. Um, Our mutual friend, Keith Giles has convinced me that the kingdom of the United States of America is not the same as the kingdom of God. Right. And, and once you know that, um, it's like it's it's like you can't on something you can't see, right? Once you once you see Absolutely. that, it's like, oh, I see what's happening. Um, yeah. But yeah, very interesting. Okay, so I want to talk about. Um, I just want to ask this question. We don't have to go too far into it, but it's really interesting because one thing that you did there with that child was to just embrace them, right? And to I mean that was a very nonviolent because you could have returned violence for violence, right? Yeah. 
um, which is maybe the natural inclination. Uh, but that, you know, embracing the person with nonviolence um, is so much, was so much more powerful. Right. And it changed probably not only that kid, but also you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, it, but it was totally foreign to my nature. You know, my nature was absolutely, I mean, he was 10 years old. I wasn't going to hit him, right. but my nature would be to defend myself, you know, and stop the attack. Even if it was and, rhetorically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think my nature would have been to just get away from the danger. Right. I mean, it made no sense for me to walk towards him. Right. Uh, and that's and that's why I was felt like I need to apologize to the team that I was with. I mean, I felt like I put us in more danger. But again, it was a 10 year old. So it's not like he was horribly threatening. Some of the kids he was with were a lot bigger. If they all started throwing stones, we would have been in some real trouble. But um, it was just con- contrary to the nature that I had experienced that point in my life. But it taught me something about who God is and the way of Jesus. Uh, isn't it cool when God surprises you from within yourself? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love it when that happens. It doesn't happen enough for me. So, so often I see me, you know, but uh, right. that nature that, that wants to defend itself and attack back and defend myself. But uh, in that moment, Jesus broke through and that kid's life was changed. My life was changed. And uh I'm still living in the wake of that experience. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, so um, so you find yourself, then you're pastoring a church, right? And you've got this sort of tension. How did that play out? I'm really curious in your church, in your preaching, in your kind of ministry. How did that tension show up? I was really affected by the Brownsville Revival. Are you familiar with that at oh, all? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, Um it, it was really interesting to a Southern Baptist like myself because there were like manifestations of the Holy Spirit and Pentecostalism and all these things. I actually got rebaptized at the Brownsville Revival because okay. I had such an encounter with God there. But at the same time, now looking back, I think there was a lot of legalism about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw these huge numbers of people being affected. And so I started to pattern my preaching style after what I saw take place there. And so it was all about uh, my interpretation. I'm not saying anything about yeah, the yeah. leaders of the Brownsville Bible. So, I think, again, their hearts were in the right place. Which is great. So let me just clarify. So the for people who don't know, the Brownsville Revival happened in Florida, right? Yes, um, near Pensacola. Near Pensacola. In fact, we've had a couple of guests uh, in the past. So this is one of the things I love to do, by the way, uh, is I love to w- look at trends and things that uh, different people who were affected by different movements, um, including, so like, for instance, the number of people who have been inf- impacted and, and brought to Christ by Campus Crusade or Crew, what they call themselves now, yeah, astounding. Billy Graham, we've had multiple Absolutely. people who gave their lives to Christ because of Billy Graham. Uh, and Brownsville now, this is you're the third one. So Michael Woodward, if you guys want to go find him, and then also um, Steve Bremner was kind of there afterwards. But um, so okay, so but anyway, this was a revival. It was kind of like a full scale, you know, yes. revival, the likes of which we hadn't seen in America, probably at least since Billy Graham for sure. But this was kind right. of, in the, was it in the nineties or was it in the early two thousands? I believe it was father's day of 1995 okay. was when that started, Mid, but it turned into three and a half years or so Yeah, of church services, five nights a week, people lining up around the block to get in. 
Yeah. Uh, they line up early in the morning to get in for six o'clock open of doors. Right. Uh, it was pretty incredible. People were coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. And depending on your theological background, you may or may not have issues with it, but it was right. definitely more Pentecostal. <laughs> yeah. And so, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, I'm told the one thing we do here is we, it's okay for, to look at different backgrounds. So anyway, but so you were affected by that. And so you were kind of bringing your preaching. Did you, did, what kind of experience did you have there? Um, I had an encounter. I had actually gone to the, the Brownsville team came to Birmingham where I was living at that time. And I went to the event that they did at the fairgrounds in Birmingham. And I kind of went to mock. I okay. mean, so you're I skeptical. heard about the manifestational stuff. Yeah. And I went as a Southern Baptist, you know, ready to criticize, uh, to have uh-huh. stories to tell at church the following Sunday about how off base these folks were. Um, and I heard the pastor talking about, you know, sins cutting us off from God and how we have this bronze heaven over our heads and that if we would just repent and and get right with God, that the heavens would open up and we'd hear the voice of God again. And, and I know uh, that during that time, it was a dry season in my life, you know, which was probably why I was so focused on the attention of others. I would go to a service like that and mock. Um, but I went and I don't know. It was just one of those instances where the love of God broke through to me. And I responded during the altar call. I was sitting in the pastor section, but uh-huh. responded during the altar call and just had an encounter with the love of God there as well. And um, it, it changed me. But I thought, okay, this is what God's doing now. Yeah. So I want to do it like this. And so I started preaching a very hard edge message of you are a sinner and your sin has cut you off from God. And You've got to repent. You've got to get your life together. You've got to try harder and do better in order to please, live a life pleasing to God and be worthy of the anointing on your life. And uh, a lot of legalism followed that. Yeah, you know, I started to get very proud of how many chapters of the Bible I would read a day or how many days I would fast or, or whatever. And I started to associate the presence of God in my life with my performance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that just leads to disastrous places. That's that you're headed for burnout the minute you buy in. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I think a lot of pastors struggle with that, right? Yep. Like it's, if that's what you're, you're teaching people, that's what you got to do. Yep. Yeah. And, it, and it's exhausting. And then there's the whole life in the fishbowl effect, right? Because the pastor and his wife are under a microscope at all times. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Romania, I married a Romanian woman. Um, who had been impacted by the ministry of David Wilkerson in New York. They had sent a team to Romania where she lived, and she had gotten saved there and under that ministry. And um, so she had a a ministry mindset as well, um, but she had been horribly abused her entire childhood. And I didn't know it when I married her, but the only way she knew how to deal with fear or uh, challenge was violence. And so I was in a very violent marriage for 10 years. Wow. Um, And I I was dealing with that while pastoring churches with this hard edge gospel. Wow. Feeling like I had to live up to some idea of perfection. Couldn't tell anybody what I was dealing with. And not able to do it. And I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And so at some point you self-destruct. And that's exactly what happened to me. Uh, probably 2006, 2007, I'm pastoring a church in North Alabama. And uh, we had a very clear vision of what we felt called to do for that community. We were going to sell the property. Uh, The church had property that was paid for. We had several buildings on the campus. We had uh, a pretty good setup out in the country, but we were going to sell all that and move to the closest nearest big city 
and just pour ourselves out for the poor and people in poverty in that community. Um, right before we sold the building, one of the elders changed his mind. Who had helped, He had helped plant the church, helped build all those buildings, and just couldn't let go of it. And he opposed me uh, publicly on a Sunday morning uh, when right before we sold the property. And I took that so personally that I said, all right, I, I resign. I quit. I will never set foot in this building again. And uh, I reacted the way that I did, I think, because of the struggle that I was in at home. You know, I just mm. I felt like I was dealing with so much pushback and violence and, and uh, abuse, really, at home that I, I couldn't tolerate that at church as well. And so I became very power hungry and, and kind of mm. a control freak. Uh, controlling yeah, what, the little bit that I could in my life, which is really self protection. Yeah, you know, is it's it's motivated. I from appreciate that. you cutting me some slack on that. <laughs> it was completely wrong in a church setting, well, but um, but I had good motives, I think. Yeah, I, well, I think that's that's one of the things I like to uh, I want to want to bring out. I mean, it, nobody acts that way because they're just a jerk. Usually, you, right. you, usually it's because there's something else going on. And so, yeah. Uh, Some of my best friends are pastors. Every single one of them struggles Man. with control and every single one of them has scars on their body, <laughs> you know, spiritually, metaphorically speaking. Sure. They have the scars of why they are that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you quit. You yeah. I, walk, yeah I quit. Okay. Um, the next time um, there was a flare up at home. Um, my wife grabbed, I don't know if you've seen those little wooden paper towel dispensers. It stands up. It's made out of wood. It yeah. holds the paper towel roll upright. She grabbed one of those and, and went to clock me in the head with it. And we had our, our first child at that point, our only child at that point. Um, and she was two years old and she went and hid under the table and was crying mm. over what she was seeing unfold around her. And so I grabbed my little girl and walked out the door and filed for divorce almost immediately. Wow. Almost immediately started dating the woman who had previously been my youth pastor's wife, who they had gone through a divorce prior to that, um, which, of course, invited all kinds of scandal yeah. and accusations and, and all that. And we rushed headfirst into what is now my second marriage. We've now been married for almost 12 years. Um, we did absolutely everything wrong in that season, but she has absolutely been God's greatest gift to me. Um, we've had, uh, she had two kids that she brought into the marriage. I had my little girl and then we had one child together, uh, who's eight years old now and he's incredible. Uh, but isn't it weird how these horrible circumstances in our lives, when we make all kinds of mistakes and do everything that you're taught not to do, but it can turn out to be grace. Yeah. God can really can't turn something good out of absolutely anything. And that's definitely what my marriage has been for me now. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So you kind of lost everything at that point. Yep, everything. Wow. Some of the people who were my biggest fans, uh, I had I had pastors who were telling me I was five years and a, and a PhD away from speaking at the Southern Baptist Convention, the national meeting. Which is a big uh, deal. People, yeah, people who really saw destiny and a, and a future and a purpose for my life and my ministry who would no longer take my phone calls. Wow. And the ones who did call, it was because they were telling me, you know, you need to go back. You need to fix this. You need to, you know. Yeah. And I, I couldn't hear that. Uh, again, they had the best of intentions. I just couldn't hear what they were saying. Yeah. Um, and for some of those, I've been able to reconcile in the years since, and others I haven't ever spoken to again. 
uh, through my choice or their choice or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, I lost everything. Where was God for you in that season? God was in the friends who still took my call. God was in the love of my new wife who had come into the marriage with all kinds of baggage from her first marriage and all kinds of fear and all kinds of rejection, but loved me so completely. Um, You know, one of the things that was so lonely about ministry for me during my first marriage is there were things that I was wrestling with inside that I could never say to anybody. I couldn't say it to my pastor friends, couldn't say it to the folks at church who had me on this pedestal and expected perfection. I couldn't say it even to my wife at that time because I knew how disappointed she would be in me. And I knew that it could provoke a, uh, an uproar. Yeah. And so I felt like nobody loved me for me. <laughs> it was like God was saying, well, how could they? You never let anybody know you for you. Yeah. And, and really there was some of that in my relationship with God as well. You know, God was very gracious to me in those years, and that he reminded me constantly of his love, even though there were things I was actively trying to hide from him. Right. Things I was wrestling with that I never wanted to pray about, never wanted to talk about, never wanted to take to the Father and show him what was going on in my heart. It was stuff I buried deep down in the the basement of my heart. Uh, He was so good to love me right where I was. Yeah, which it's so easy to do that, right? Especially when you think you have to perform – Man, which is really interesting. It, all right, so we don't have to go too far into this, but I'm just really struck. I'm I'm a little bit grieved because um, it's it's just a it's a it's one of my hot buttons for leaders. Yeah. You know, like if you can't be yourself, you shouldn't be there, right? You, yeah. Like if you have to perform up to a certain standard, um, and you don't have anybody. I mean, th- this is so. My my example is Ted Haggard here in Colorado and down in, in the Springs. I mean, this guy was, okay, he was doing some things that were unsavory. But nevertheless, he's leading a a huge church and um, going to, you know, and leading like the National Association of Evangelicals. And nobody knows him. Nobody knows he struggles with homosexuality because right. he can't be known, right? And that, yep. it, it, not saying the situations are exactly the same, but that happens to so many leaders and then when you see somebody come out and go, "Hey, I'm got some questions." Uh they're blasted. Like, well, yep. What do you want them to do? They're people, right? What is wrong? That that bothers me so deeply. So, thank you for talking about it. Sure. Yeah, Ted Haggart's one of those stories that really grabbed me. I really resonated uh with what he went through just because I know the loneliness, I know the prison yeah. cell that you know, listen, let's be honest. Sometimes we help create those prison bars we for ourselves. We hold ourselves up as worthy of a platform we've been given uh, by the grace of God. Right. Uh, but Haggard was, he was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He was crusading against gay marriage and so many of those other things. And, and to hear that he's struggling behind the scenes with all those things. Now, listen, I'm not saying this takes shots at Ted Hager. I love Ted Hager. Yeah. I love him. I disagree with almost everything he says, but I love that guy <laughs> so much because I've been there. I, I know the pain. Yeah. I know the, the shame. I know when that church imploded, when they wrote him out of their history, I know what he went through. I felt that pain. Yeah. I'm grateful that I didn't have a mega church to go through that with, that it wasn't affecting thousands of people. Um, but also know that there were victims. There were people who got, whose faith was wrecked in the wake of that. Right. 
And I'm sure there were, uh, you know, on a much smaller scale through my own significant failures, yeah. my own great sadness. Yeah. So friends, my only point there in bringing that up and just kind of making that connection is that uh, we just, we got to take better care of our leaders. They're people, yeah. they're people. And you can't, whether, whether you're putting yourself in that place or not, I mean, really, if you have good elders, you have people who, who, you know, can take care of you, that helps. But or the people are putting in that place, it's not okay. Like you have to, we have to be transparent. And that's a, that's a quality in a leader that uh, is undervalued, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. That's just one of my hot buttons. Like I said, it makes me so furious to see leaders who feel like they have to, um, have to hide because it's the opposite of both leadership and the love of Christ, right? So, yeah, opposite of what we're doing here. Okay, so but anyway, you go through that whole uh, that whole series, that whole that whole thing, um, and I can only imagine. You know, God was in your friends. You said, which is that's amazing. What you know, how'd that resolve itself, or what what happened then? About 2010. This is a couple of years later. Um, I I was still dealing with that call of God on my life, you know, and the doors that had been open to me previously weren't open anymore. Yeah. In the Southern Baptist Church, in the middle of the buckle of the Bible Belt in Alabama, you don't have a divorce, and you especially don't have a remarriage, and you really don't remarry your former youth pastor's <laughs> wife. Who's also divorced, uh, yeah. Right, who's also divorced. And so um, you don't do that. And so I broke all these unwritten laws, and so those doors were closed to me. But I really had a strong sense of ministry, and so I just said, you know, I'm going to start a church for people who love Jesus, but hate church. And, uh, but then the problem when you do that is you have a ministry that is a response to the established church and you just focus on the failures of the church and, and mm-hmm. the criticism of the church and what the church uh, I perceived at that time was doing wrong. Um, and you know what? We had some great relationships forged during that time. And I'm, I'm grateful for that season even though I think my motivations were probably pretty bad in hindsight. Um, so I, I kind of worked my way back into ministry. Um, some folks rallied around me and, and we planted a church and it failed pretty quickly. Uh, but then a couple other doors opened for me to uh, return to ministry. I, I was a youth pastor for a couple of years in the United Methodist church, which was much more forgiving and uh, grace filled uh, in, in that season of my life. But literally one day sitting in my office, full-time staff of the Methodist Church, uh, my former wife showed up at the door and asked to speak to the pastor. Wow. And uh, uh, so the things, things got messy and rocky. They loved me through all that. They, they already knew the story, and uh, they stood by me, and that was awesome. That was grace for me. Um, but it was, it was a difficult season. I think I just started to see institutional religion, uh, the, the kind of the dark side of it, you know, that pedestal that we've been talking about, the performance expectations. So much of the church in the United States of America in particular is run like a corporation. Yeah. And I had read something from, um, I believe it was Mike Iaconelli, who my podcast is named after his book, Messy Spirituality. Um, he said something like, when you start to see the church operating like a corporation, You've got to find a way to sabotage that. <laughs> wow. And that, 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 that quote just kind of grabbed me. And I, I started to see myself as this subversive agent 
uh, working in the church. And obviously that's not going to work long term. And so we parted ways uh, and I planted another church. That brings me up to 2014. We okay. planted this church in the middle of nowhere, this poor community, highly addicted community. We're heavy on recovery ministry. We're there for the poor. Um, we're not preaching tithing or even ask, uh, passing an offering plate. It's just love and grace and because that's what I needed in that season of my life. And yeah. I knew that there were other people who needed it too. Yeah. And so that was the last church that I pastored. Okay. Somewhere along that journey. And, and then and then you left there eventually? Yeah. I was walking at the gym one day after being at that church for two or three years. And it's going well. I love it. Walking around the the track at my gym and I'm listening to a podcast. It's Brad Jerzak talking Mm. to Jonathan Martin on the old son of a preacher man podcast, which I used to love it. it, It's been revamped since then. And and it's still very, very good. I love it. But um, I'm listening to this podcast and it's like that love that I encountered on the operating table when I was 12 and the love that I encountered in that embrace of that child in the streets of Romania it started crashing down over me. The only way I've ever found to describe it, somebody else's words, waves of liquid love Mm. just crashing over me. And so while I had been heavy on grace and heavy on the love of God for several years, I had still preached hell and condemnation and getting right, the whole idea that we get right with God based on our performance. And all of that was just dismantled there in the gym that day. I'm tears streaming down my face. I know everybody around me must have thought I was having a nervous breakdown. And I've never been the same since that day. Wow. I couldn't go back. I couldn't preach the way that I used to preach. I couldn't use fear of hell as a weapon against people, teaching them to be uh, afraid of, of what God would do to them if they didn't join the club or join the church or whatever. And, um, so some of the people who followed that church, some people who supported that church, some of the people who made that church happen when that ministry focus changed, when I started preaching that God loves everybody, whether you're in or you're out, you're part of the family and you're a human being created with purpose, with dignity to be loved, created in the image of your father. Um, you know, there was a backlash against that. Mm. And we lost some people that kind of made the church happen. Um, and it started to slide off. But at the same time, I realized that if, if it wasn't all about those sermons on Sunday and getting people saved from hell for me anymore, what was it going to be about? Yeah. And so we started asking our community, what do you need? And, you know, they, more than they needed a church service, they needed food. And so we stopped doing church on Sunday mornings and we set up a free market in the sanctuary. And we had produce and meats and dairy and canned goods, box stuff toilet paper, paper towel, stuff like that. And families in need could come through and shop for free on Sunday morning. And man, the relationships that were formed there, that was one of the best expressions of church I've ever seen in my life. Wow. But it was so foreign to anything that I'd ever seen before as, you know, the ordained men of God yeah. in the church. Um. It, it wrecked me. Now, eventually we ran out of money and we couldn't afford the building anymore. And so I'll, that went away last year and it broke my heart and the mm. team that stuck with us when we quit doing church services and started just loving the community you know a funny thing happened though about six months after we started that market some of the families 
that were coming to the market said, would you, would you do a worship service for us? <laughs> and so once a month, we'd have a gathering, you know, and yeah. we'd do communion and the table was open. Everybody could come. If you need this, if you need to know that God loves you, if you need a reminder that his presence is with you, come to the table and receive the body and the blood of Jesus. And no one was excluded. And man, it just was so beautiful. And then we ran out of money <laughs> and we couldn't do it anymore. And shortly after that, uh, my wife and I moved. My wife works from home. She's really good at her job. And so she's in high demand. And so um, we can live anywhere. And she'd always dreamed of living at the beach. And we had chased my dream of ministry for 10, 11 years at that point. And so it felt like it was time to chase her dream of living at the beach. And so we moved to the Florida Panhandle. And that's where I am today talking to you. Nice. Yeah, that's good. So you get to you get to work there. But what an interesting and beautiful expression of just the body of Christ just sharing with people. Um I really really love that. Was that hard for you to shut that down? Yeah, it was it was hard. It felt like a, the I don't want to minimize anybody who's lost a child, but to me that's what it felt like. I honestly believed that the Hope Center, which is what we called that market was going to be my life's work. I thought I was going to do that until I, you know, handed it off to somebody else at some point when I was old and couldn't do it anymore. Uh, it was a shock to me when we lost that. Uh, I, I still grieve over that. I still miss the people that we did it with who were part of the team that made it happen. And I miss the people that we served. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, Jason, that's, that's fascinating. When did you start your podcast? I started the podcast right at the very end of that. Okay. When I had that encounter on the track at the gym as a result of a podcast, I wanted to be a part of creating moments like that for other uh -huh. people. I love questions. Uh, to be honest, I started the podcast completely selfishly because I wanted to have conversations with some people that I'd been following. I wanted to have conversations with Keith Giles. I wanted to have conversations with um, Brad Jerzak and people like that in ministry that I looked up to and respected who had a different view of God than I did. Yeah. Brian Zahn was on my dream list from day one. I still haven't worked up the courage oh. to ask. <laughs> you know what? He's on my list too. I would love yeah, to interview yeah. Brian Zahn and I just keep waiting for him to release a new book. Cause I'm going to go, go get him. Hey, by the way, it's he coming. He's got a, he's got a book on Advent coming out very soon. Oh, great. Well, I don't know if I want to read that, but okay. I'm not big on Advent. I, I, I don't tell anybody. I just don't. Okay. Advent. I won't tell Brian if, you, if I ever do talk to him. <laughs> Maybe I'll just do it anyway. But, uh, just to have him on. But yeah, that that's. Uh, I, I'm a big believer. You got to do an interview, a couple interviews a year that scare you just a little bit, you know? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. He, Paul Young was one of those for me. Yeah, you, know, you recently had him. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He, it was just, I was terrified. I was on the verge of tears from the first moment we started talking and, it, and at some point in the conversation, I apologized to him for talking badly about him and the shack when the shack was released because, yeah. uh, you know, a Southern Baptist pastor, man, I was oh, yeah. railing against that. Okay. Oh man. I hope I don't get and, in too much trouble for saying this. All right. So, okay. I got to tell you a story. So like okay, I, I read the shack. I'm, I'm, I got a little bit of a rebellious streak. So when I hear like Christian leaders say, Oh, you should totally stay away from this book. I go read it. So like, that's why I read Harry Potter. Cause people were not, you know, they were saying that because of the, right. Magic. I was one of the people telling you, you weren't allowed to do that. And I was like, Oh heck no, let hun, let's read this. So my wife and I read it. And then by the end of that series, I was like getting the books on the day they came out and we'd have them read in wow. a week. Yeah. Cause it was so great. But 
I did the same thing with the shack. And when I saw the movie, I went to go with my buddy, um, <laughs> Jay and he, he's a counselor. So he and I are sitting there watching this movie, two grown men, our wives didn't come weeping in this movie, right? Watch it because of the, the love of God and the way that it shows up. He shows up there and we're just looking at each other and start laughing because of how silly it was. But anyway, so Paul Young wrote that book, wrote the shack. Yeah. Um, so here's, I'm convinced, and this is what I love about your story. I think the shack um, speaks into a different part of the spiritual journey. And I think that's why it's dangerous, right? So what I'm hearing from your story uh, is you've been called by God multiple times. You've been invited into the love of God multiple times throughout your life, throughout your career. And uh, I'm convinced that love, loving like Christ, is the pinnacle of the spiritual journey, right? It's That's where we're actually headed, that's the goal. And so many churches make um, how you act, what you know, what you do, um, the pinnacle. And that, so that's what they offer. And as soon as that gets messy, uh, then you're out, right? Yep, you're out. That's right. And that, uh, I think, is actually counter to both the way of Jesus, but also the heart of Jesus. That's actually my church's uh, tagline, uh, helping people with living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. I love it. Yeah, it's pretty good. So um, anyway, that that I, is what I see in you. I don't know, does that resonate with you? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember seeing the movie The Shack as well, and I love the movie. I, I loved the book once I finally read it. I criticized it without reading it. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the issue to me, you know, a lot of the pastors around me in Alabama had a problem with God being a black woman. But to me, it was just God was letting everybody get away with too much. You know, yeah. God was not helping the preachers keep their folks in line in that book. <laughs> and that the love of God just seemed reckless to me. Yeah. I had experienced it, but I was terrified of it. Because, man, I could really destroy my life if it was just about you know, me doing whatever I wanted. And no consequences from God. Right. But anyway, I apologize to Paul for that. And then he starts crying. And so we're both crying at one point during, during the interview. It's a good interview um, if you make him cry. Yeah. And so that became the standard on the podcast. <laughs> if we can get everybody crying, we know it's a good episode. Uh, but that interview affected me deeply, you know, and, and I actually talked to Paul yesterday and we're, we're going to try to get together um, down here. He's going to come down here and hang out with us for a few days. And Very so, cool. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But anyway, the love of God is all there is. When I saw the movie version of The Shack, and there's that scene where there's the mm. garden. Eric, do you remember this? Uh, there's this garden, and it's just a mess. And the Holy Spirit takes Mac into the garden to help her prune and cut. Yeah. And, and he's like, what is this mess? And she goes, this is you. Yeah. This is the chaos. But by the end of that movie, that garden, it's still eclectic. It's still wild to look at all these colors and different things growing in this garden. But it's a masterpiece. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking. Right. If that's how God sees us, then man, I can't do anything better than introduce that kind of love to people in the real world. People who feel alone and people who feel broken and people, people who feel like they've never been good enough for whatever church they've been exposed to, whatever standards religion has tried to put on them. If they could know that kind of love, it transforms us from the inside out. Amen. Amen. And nothing else does. Nothing. Yeah. 
yeah, trying to live up to a standard just doesn't do it. It doesn't do it. So um, that season of going through, you know, difficulty or the spiritual desert, whatever you want to call it, we all, y'all have to, we all have to do it, right? You have to go yeah, through it. Absolutely. Uh, and, and we all resist it, I think. Oh, yeah. I ran from that for so long. Yeah. Because you see how lonely it's going to be. Right. I mean, there's, there's a part of that journey that feels like it's just you and God. Yeah. And that terrifies us. Right. But it, man, it's so good in, in the aftermath. And brother, I may end up back there next week. Right. Well, it's cyclical. It goes, it goes around and, and it happens, but it's, uh, it is how God takes things out of us. It is how he shows us who we really are. And that then I think is where we go, where the real magic happens, right? When we start to know who we are, we understand that we are perfectly loved and we, um, you know, we can then live out of who he made us to be without having yeah. to try to perform. And that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. It really is. Yeah, man. Well, Jason, I love that. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm sure it was, it was difficult to go, to go through all that, but I, I love hearing the emphasis on God's love and the way that he's shared that with you over, over the years. Um, we could probably talk a lot more and hopefully, hopefully I'll get a chance to be on your show and we'll share. We'll yeah, <laughs> share we're going to do that. We're going to pick up this conversation. That'll be good. And then we can, uh, we can, we, friends, you can find that as well. So, uh, Jason, anything you want to leave us with? Uh, just what I said earlier. You know, I know there's folks listening to your podcast because they listen. Many of them listen to mine as well. That feel alone, feel like they're all alone in this journey. That if anybody knew who they really were, they would run. Yeah. And I just want to remind every, all of us, myself included, there is a God in heaven who created you, who knows you better than you know yourself, and the sooner we all recognize that and stop trying to hide or shield those things from him, the sooner we can realize who we really are, the sooner we can show who we really are to the people around us and feel the love of our fellow man in addition to the love of God. And it changes everything. The love of God without agenda pierces the facade that we wear. It sets us free from shame. It disarms our rejection and insecurity, and it teaches us to be loved and to love those around us. And the love journey is what this life is all about. Chris Christopherson, I think, said it best. Love is the reason we happened at all. <laughs> That's awesome. Jason, thank you so much uh, for sharing your story. Friends, you are loved. I hope you know that. Thank you for being here. Jason, thanks a lot. Thank you, Eric. You ask great questions. You're the man. I appreciate you.